Welcome to the White Coat Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Certified Life Coach, Paula White, MD. If you are a physician in academic medicine and tired of feeling run down and powerless from your job, this is the podcast for you. My aim is to give you practical, actionable tips in episodes that are short enough that you can listen during your commute. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining me back again this week. Uh, Before we get started, I know the audio was really glitchy last week. Um, I was traveling and my podcast mic really was not happy at all about being banged around in my suitcase. I ended up redoing the recording a couple times and what you heard was the best version I could get. So I appreciate everyone who listened to the end anyway. I know it was kind of annoying. Hoping things are back to normal now. Today we're going to get into the concept of facts and reality. As doctors, we get so much training about the importance of having the right information. Read the latest studies, know the current stats, make sure the information you're quoting to colleagues or patients is correct. And for good reason, right? If we're incorrect, it might increase the risk of someone having a bad outcome. As a general principle in medical practice, having the correct or right ideas in your head is probably a very good thing. If I don't know something, or if I think my grasp of it is a little shaky, I'm going to look it up rather than just guess. Maybe the desire to know the correct information or truth is a product of the high stakes involved in our practice, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe some of us ended up in medicine because wanting to know the right answer is just part of our personality. Either way, I think it's safe to say that a good chunk of us have a firm belief that it's important to be correct most or all of the time. Now, I'm not saying that we think we are always right. I'm just saying that we believe that accuracy of information is crucial and that someone who believes something that we think is demonstrably false is at best misinformed and at worst possibly delusional. Because of the amount of information that we need to learn and filter and interpret on a daily basis, we develop a skill for summarizing data into key points. As an example, we might tell a patient that they should wear their seatbelt because seatbelts save lives. And if a patient said seatbelts are deadly, we'd probably think they're wrong. I know I would. But if you want to be really pedantic about it, the statement, seatbelts save lives, is not totally accurate. It's at least a gross oversimplification. It would be a little more accurate to say that in most motor vehicle collisions, the statistical risk of death is lower for those wearing seatbelts than for those who are not. And then if we want to be really specific, we can say that according to data from the NHTSA, seatbelt use was associated with a 45% lower risk of fatal injury in front seat passenger car occupants. Obviously, it's not practical to spew data like this about every bit of counseling that we give every patient, nor is it necessary. For things that have been studied over and over with similar or identical results time after time, using the mental shorthand makes a lot of sense. We might use the more specific or pedantic approach when we're counseling someone using new or emerging data. We might say, according to the best information that I have in front of me right now, this is what I know. So why am I pointing this out? I'm using this to draw a distinction between a fact and a thought or a belief. A fact is something that pretty much everyone would agree on or something that can be proven. If I tell you, I like your shirt, and someone overhears and says, Paula said she likes your shirt. That's a fact. I did say it. It's verifiable. If I said, I like your shirt, and the witness later says, Paula likes your shirt, that's not a fact. The witness is interpreting my words in a very logical way, I might add, but maybe I was lying. 
Maybe I hate your shirt and I was just trying to be polite. The witness has taken the fact and created a story about it. This particular story is pretty straightforward and most people would agree that it's the most likely conclusion, but it's not the only conclusion. In the truest sense of the word, being delusional would mean that a person is unwilling or unable to believe facts that are proven to be true. But we often misuse the word because we get confused about what is a fact and what is a thought or a belief. It's probably not helpful to disbelieve true facts, at least not most of the time. But what about beliefs? It's completely possible to choose to believe the opposite of conventional wisdom and be well served by it. As doctors were really resistant to this concept for all the reasons that we just discussed, but there really is a time and a place for this. Here's an example. When I was a kid, I had a firm belief that girls were naturally smarter than boys. I really have no idea where this came from, and I truly thought that this was a fact. I thought that everyone knew this, but no one really talked about it because boys' egos were too fragile and it would hurt their feelings. So I just thought that this was like this giant secret that everyone in the world knew, but no one said out loud. I thought it for years, and I truly, truly thought everyone else knew it too. So seriously, all through grade school and high school, if a boy raised their hand in class and tried to answer a question, I would think, wow, good for them, putting themselves out there and trying even when it must be so hard. Now, I'm sure I must have known some boys who did well in school. And if so, I'm sure I thought that they must be the rare exceptions, or maybe I thought they just worked way harder than most people in order to achieve it. And I definitely had a few girlfriends who struggled, and I know that I thought that they were exceptions. But seriously, if I saw a boy reaching for some scholarly goal, I would truly think, wow, good for him for trying so hard, even though the odds are against him. When I got to college for the first two years, I was a physics major. I took some challenging math and physics classes freshman year. I remember it being a lot harder than high school, and I know I had to work a whole lot harder than I ever did before but I got through them and my grades were okay. Then in sophomore year, the math and physics got even harder and the classes got really small. So now we're getting into classes that people just don't take unless they're gonna go into this for a career. The physics that I was taking had, I think somewhere around 10 people in the class. All were male except for me. I did have one friend in the class and at first he and I tried to study together, but the rest of the class formed a study group for male students only. And they were completely open with me about the fact that I was being excluded because I was a girl. They told me so to my face. These other eight or so students had all grown up in cultural environments where they were taught that STEM careers are for men and women are simply not smart enough for those careers. Moreover, some of them probably believed it was frankly wrong or inappropriate for a woman to pursue such things. Now, in retrospect, I'm sure this can't have been the first time I was exposed to the idea that women didn't belong in STEM. It's highly unlikely that I hadn't ever heard this before. But this was the first time that it really felt up close and personal. So my one friend in the class tried to keep studying with me, but eventually he ended up joining the other study group and I dropped the class when I just couldn't keep up anymore. And as it turns out, dropping the physics class gave me room to add a biology elective, and it was like my whole world went from black and white to technicolor. I'm really thankful now that I dropped the class and switched my major because I know now that the biologic sciences are much more my style, 
And I'm really confident that I'm far happier as a doctor than I ever would have been as a physicist or an engineer. And I don't actually have any ill feelings toward those male students who excluded me because I know they truly didn't know any better. And inadvertently, they nudged me toward a much better career. So I'm not crediting my childhood belief about girls being smarter as the sole reason that I was academically successful. I know that there are tons of things that played a role. I was lucky enough to be born into a middle-class family where all of my physical and psychosocial needs were met. I attended good schools. I had supportive parents and teachers, and I happened to be good at taking standardized tests. But I also have to believe that thinking I had a natural advantage had to have been some influence. I'm sure that having it in the back of my mind was one of the reasons I had the confidence to raise my hand and speak up in class, or why I felt I could pursue any career I wanted to. Those boys in my physics class probably thought I was delusional. In fact, even now, decades later, probably more than half the people in this country would think that someone who thinks girls are smarter than boys is a little delusional. Isn't it funny? Neither one of us is right or wrong, because this really isn't something that can be proven. I know I'm sure there's plenty of statistics about who does better on standardized tests, but that's really all that those statistics measure. They don't tell us who will succeed in life, or what success means anyway. But people have really deeply rooted beliefs that they think are facts, and their beliefs will influence how they approach so many things, and their brains will look for the ways to prove them true, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Although I do think it served me well, I don't choose to continue thinking this. The concept of smart is just too abstract for me to think that it could vary directly in relation to the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. But I can definitely choose to continue thinking that I'm personally smart enough to try anything I want to try. And keeping that belief will probably serve me well. So how can you apply this to work and burnout? So many ways. You can remind yourself that you don't actually know what anyone else is thinking. Even if someone blatantly tells you what they're thinking, you don't know that they're telling the truth. So if what you believe they're thinking is all just made up story in your head, why not make it something that works for you? Well, I imagine one of the first things you're thinking right now is that that would be wrong. Well, maybe, maybe not. You don't actually know. And regardless, what's the harm? Well, the answer to that depends on the story you choose to craft and what you intend to gain from it. Let's say I run a meeting and I have an interaction with a colleague and at the end of the meeting, the colleague stands up abruptly and leaves. I could make that mean so many things. My go-to would be that I must have hurt their feelings or said something upsetting, that they must be mad at me. And if they are, I must have done something wrong to cause it, which then means I'm doing a bad job, which then leads me to question my abilities and then I'll have less confidence at the next interaction and become less effective. I will prove myself correct by telling myself this story that I'm doing a bad job. That's exactly what I will eventually be doing. So that story isn't helpful. The unconscious goal of the first story is probably because I am by nature a people pleaser and I get really stressed if people around me aren't happy all the time. Well, that's obviously not coming from a very productive place because people are responsible for their own feelings and I can't possibly do anything in such a way that I can guarantee that everyone will be happy. So I could take my story in the opposite direction. 
I could tell myself that it had nothing to do with me and this person must be upset about something else in their life. Well, I don't think that's a good story either. Sure, it might make me feel a little better, but A, I probably wouldn't believe it, and B, I'd be passing up an opportunity for some personal growth. The unconscious goal of that story is just to make the problem go away so I can feel better, and that's a pretty self-centered goal. But what if I decide to make it mean that since I sense some tension here, it may or may not be related to me, and maybe I should investigate. Having this story makes me feel curious and caring, and those feelings put me in the frame of mind to figure out the best way to approach it and see if there's a learning opportunity for me here or not. This story sends me in a good direction. Of all the three options I've presented, it's the one that's most likely to result in a positive outcome for all involved, including me. My instinct to blame and shame myself does the opposite of that. So wouldn't it be better to choose to think something that would lead to better results? It's really hard to accept as a physician that your interpretation could be wrong and you're choosing to keep it anyway. But remember, you never really know what someone else is thinking. And the story you tell yourself should be one that points you toward goals that you really want. Spend some time this week noticing the stories you're telling yourself. Instead of focusing, as we usually do, on whether they are true or not, ask yourself why you're interpreting things the way you are and what goal that serves. Do you like that goal? Do you want to keep your story? Or is it maybe time for a new one? If you're interested in having someone help you work through this, come visit me at whitecoatlifecoach.com. Thanks for joining me today. See you next time. or views on this podcast or on my website are my own and should not be attributed to my employer.